0: Our reading today comes from Haggai chapter 2, and I'm reading from the ESV version. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, "Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now?" declares the lord of hosts on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of darius the word of the lord came by haggai the prophet thus says the lord of hosts ask the priests about the law if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food does it become holy the priests answered and said no Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onwards. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fear? When one came to a heap of, of <coughs> sorry. when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onwards from the twenty fourth day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Let me add uh, my welcome to Rod's. My name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership uh, team here at Hebron. And I'm going to be continuing, as Rod mentioned, our series this morning in the Old Testament book of Haggai. We've already thankfully had uh, chapter two read for us. You might find it helpful to have that open in front of you as we go along over the course of the next few minutes. But before we come to think about it together, uh, let me pray uh, and ask for God's help as we do that. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we pray along with the psalmist this morning that over the coming few minutes, the words of my mouth and the meditations, the reflections of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by introducing you to three people. Their names are Lizzie and Josh and Debbie. And they each have quite a lot in common with one another. They are all clear and committed Christians. And they're all actively involved in their own local churches. And alongside that, they're all keen evangelists. They're regularly involved in having conversations about Jesus with folks who they know don't know Jesus yet. But although they're all similarly committed to serving Jesus, they all face slightly different issues that impact them as they go about doing that. For Lizzie, the issue is discouragement. She works really hard to tell people about Jesus but as committed as she is well she never really seems to make much headway no one seems to be all that interested in hearing what it is that she has to say and so when she's honest with herself she sometimes wonders whether it's really worth keeping going keeping trying or whether she should throw in the towel that's lizzie then uh, there's josh things aren't exactly rosy for him either his problem isn't with the work itself uh, but with what motivates him to work see josh is acutely aware of his own imperfection his own sinfulness he knows that even as a christian he often lets god down by how he behaves and how he thinks And so as he approaches telling people about Jesus, he he treats it as kind of a, a spiritual debt repayment plan, if you like. He's paying his debt back to God, one act of service, or one conversation about Jesus at a time. That's Josh. And lastly, Debbie. Debbie faces discouragement too, a bit like Lizzie. But it isn't because the work she's doing looks pretty weak. It's that as she works... She's being opposed. She tried inviting some colleagues to a Christmas carol service at her church last year. And ever since then, they've been treating her as an outsider, as a bit of a religious nut. And you see, the problem is that over time, she's beginning to wonder if they might be right. Now, from the outside... Lizzie, Josh and Debbie might well look as though they're on the right lines or on the right track as Christians, but underneath all of that apparent keenness, those issues are kind of eating away at them. Discouragement and legalism and opposition. Now, I am sorry to say that Lizzie, Josh and Debbie won't be joining us this morning, mainly because they're not real life people. Uh, But they are an amalgam of a number of folks I have known. And the reason I introduced you to them this morning is that the kinds of issues they're facing as they look to serve Jesus, well, they're just like the issues that God's people face in Haggai chapter 2. We saw last week, if you were here in Haggai 1, that God's people had been in exile. They'd been carried away from their own homes in Jerusalem to a place called Babylon, and they'd been held captive there for around 70 years. And then God had had returned them home to their own land, to Jerusalem, and he'd commissioned them to rebuild the temple, the place where he, God, had promised to meet with his people. And after 20 or so years of of disordered priorities and of a kind of stop-start approach towards the building project, at the end of chapter 1, God's people picked up their tools and got back to work. That's what we saw last week. The project was underway again, and God's people were committed to him. Things are looking up. Until chapter 2. See, in chapter 2, the story seems to move from that major key... With the positive note ringing out at the end of chapter one to a bit of a minor key, Chapter Two is made up of, of three sermons preached by Haggai the prophet over the course of a couple of months, and each of those sermons show that things aren 't straightforward as god 's people carry on building for him, and in fact show that their experience is much like that of Lizzie of Josh and of debbie and we'll begin thinking about the first of those issues now we'll do that under our first heading wonderful the danger of discouragement just look with me at chapter 2 and verse 3 god addresses his people and he says this who is left among you who saw this house that's the temple in its former glory how do you see it now is it not as nothing in your eyes See, the rebuilding work on the temple has begun. But among the people who've returned to Jerusalem are some folks who are presumably advancing in years who can remember seeing the temple before it was destroyed. And compared to that original, well, this rebuild looks pretty underwhelming. Now, when you read that, you might be tempted to think that the problem in Haggai 2 is nostalgia. Nostalgia. I've uh, read a number of commentators this past week who who suggest exactly that. The application they make is that older Christians shouldn't discourage younger Christians by comparing the church or culture today with uh, the good old days, in other words. But that principle, whilst there might be some fairness in that generally, I don't think it actually gets to the heart of what's going on in Haggai chapter 2. Why? Well, because firstly, God doesn't try and convince these older saints to take their rose-tinted specks off. Notice it's God himself who points out the disparity between the original and the rebuild. So you see, the problem being addressed isn't nostalgia, because frankly, God himself says the new temple actually doesn't look like it is as good as the old one. That's the first reason nostalgia isn't quite the right application. And secondly... It not quite the right application because it underplays quite how important the temple really was we get a sense of that in verse three who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory now we use a phrase like that the phrase former glory just to mean the good old days don't we we might talk about a classic car or a grand old country manor being restored to their former glory But you see god means former glory quite literally because the temple was the place where god met with his people where his glory was present among them and so the reason for the discouragement in haggai 2 isn't just the fear that the rebuild doesn't look quite as good as the original it's that somehow God's glory might not be quite as present with his people in the rebuild as it was in the original. Discouragement has set in, and in Haggai too, it threatens to derail the work. Now, I mentioned last week, if you were here, that as Christians today, temple building doesn't involve bricks and mortar, but it does involve building God's church. Helping to grow the church numerically by telling people the good news of the Lord Jesus. Growing in depth by serving our brothers and sisters, speaking the truth in love to one another. And so it might be that as I described Lizzie to you a few minutes ago, well perhaps you saw something of yourself in her. Maybe you're similarly discouraged in your work of temple building as a Christian. When you finally pluck up the courage to tell a colleague or a friend or a flatmate the good news of Jesus or even just to tell them that you're a Christian and that Jesus matters to you, well, lots of people just don't want to know, do they? Why bother? Why bother pressing on with temple building when it just looks so weak? Well, to address that kind of discouragement in Haggai, God gives his people some tools, some weapons to fight against discouragement. He tells them or reminds them of what's true of the present, what's true of the past, and what's true of the future. Just notice those with me. Firstly, what's true of the present? He says that the weakness of the rebuild doesn't mean that God's left them. No, verse 4, as they build... He is still with them. That's what's true of right now for for God's people in Haggai's day. Secondly, what's true of the past. He says that they shouldn't be surprised that he's still with them. Because, verse 5, he made a covenant. A promise to be their God. All those years ago when he rescued them from slavery... In Egypt and he is still faithful to that promise so what's true of the present what's true of the past and thirdly in verses 6 and following what's true of the future he promises them that one day well he's going to make another house A temple that's so amazing, so glorious, that it's going to leave even that original temple in the shade. Read with me again, verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So, says God to his people, don't think that the apparent weakness of what you're involved in right now means that I'm not interested anymore. And don't think that it's all for nothing, I am still with you, just as I promised I would be. And the future, your eternal future, is more glorious than you can possibly imagine. So keep building. And I just wonder if that might well be a word to us as a church family too. It might not always look like it. As we run evangelistic events or or, or groups that don't always seem to have the impact we might hope or pray for. It might not always feel like it as conversation after conversation about Jesus in our office or the playground or in the communal kitchen and halls. They go by without ever seeming to bear the fruit that we're praying for. And yet God is still in the building project. We thought last week about Jesus' promise at the end of Matthew's gospel that as his people go and make disciples, as they tell people the good news of Jesus, he would be with them to the very end of the age. As we build, he is with us. And not only that, he promises a glorious future, a future where people from every tribe and language and people and nation will be gathered around the one on the throne, enjoying his glory forever. He's with us in the present and he guarantees us a wonderful, glorious future. So Christian, keep building keep telling people about jesus who don't know him yet keep speaking the truth and love to one another as a church family growing each other as christians here at hebron work because he is with you that's the first issue in haggai chapter two the danger of discouragement but i wonder if you notice as we read through the chapter the problems for god's people don't quite end there and in fact in verses 10 to 19 the problem well it might be even more dangerous still more insidious than anything we've seen so far in the book of Haggai let's think about that under our next heading verses 10 to 19 thank you the problem of spiritual pollution look with me at verses 11 and 12 it thus says the lord of hosts ask the priests about the law if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food does it that's the food become holy the priests answered and said no now what on earth is going on there you might be wondering well when it came to temple worship there were there were certain items certain objects that were set aside for god for use in worshipping him. And those items were themselves treated as as being ceremonially clean or holy. And so what God's asking the priests in Haggai's day is whether the kind of ceremonial cleanness, whether that kind of ceremonial cleanness is contagious. Whether something that's holy, when it touches something that isn't holy, well, does the unclean thing become clean? The answer comes back in Haggai 2, no, it doesn't. And then in verse 13, he flips that question on his head. Again, just look at that with me. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. See, just as there were holy objects set apart for God, well, there were others that were, were unclean, that were unholy, and so the question in verse 13 is what happens when something that's unholy, that's, that's defiled or is desecrated, touches something else? Does, does that other thing become defiled? And again, the answer comes back this time, yes. Now that might all sound a bit confusing to us. I wonder if an illustration it might help. Think for a moment about your physical health. If you go down to the local gym and you, you, you hang around the cardio equipment or the weight section for a while, not actually doing any exercise yourself, just kind of hanging around while others use the equipment, will you, by doing that, eventually become healthier? Will you contract other people's health? Well, of course you won't. You won't get any, any healthier at all. All you'll get probably is some funny looks and perhaps someone to escort you out of the gym. Health isn't contagious. It isn't transferable like that. What about ill health? sickness but well, we didn't need a global pandemic to tell us that ill health can be contagious did we send one toddler with a bit of a snotty nose into a nursery class and give it a day or two and sure as guns the rest of the class are going to be going home with exactly the same and that's something like the idea god is conveying you see holiness like a clean bill of health Is not transferable. It doesn't stick. You can't kind of contract it by osmosis. You can't pick it up. But conversely, uncleanness or unholiness, in some ways like a common cold or a disease, it sticks. Now that might all sound a bit obscure, but God's using it to illustrate a point. And the point arrives like a freight train. In verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there in the temple is unclean. See, God says that his people are unclean. No matter what they do, they can't make themselves clean. They won't become more holy. They won't kind of contract spiritual cleanness by doing good stuff. There's nothing they can do to make themselves right before God. And in fact, it gets actually worse than that because it isn't just that they can't do enough clean things to make themselves clean. No, it's that whatever they put their hands to, verse 14, even making offerings to please God, well, will they make those unclean? See, their attempt to make themselves right before God was was like trying to clean a floor using a filthy mop. They might scrub harder and longer, and yet the more and more they try, the more unclean they get. All of which begs the question, why? Why is there prognosis so bleak I mean yes they'd been a bit lethargic in building the temple in chapter one but 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 they're all getting back on board now things are back on track why is God being like this well just look on to verse 17 God says this I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord See, God's people had wandered away from him, and even though he'd sent them warnings, repeated warnings, well, they'd kept refusing to turn back. And so no matter what they try and do now, no matter how hard they try to make it up for themselves, they just can't do it. And that wasn't just a problem for people in Haggai's day. It's consistent with the message of the whole Bible, in fact human beings, every single one of us have rejected our God, have turned our backs on him. And in fact, we do it every day. And no matter how hard we might try to get our act together, to clean ourselves up before him, we just can't make it right. See, things are pretty bleak for God's people in Haggai, and they're pretty bleak for people today. Until something remarkable happens. Just notice how the sermon ends in verse 19. God says this, But from this day on I will bless you. Where on earth did that come from? The people are unclean. Their works are unclean. They're in serious and unfixable trouble before God. And yet God ends with this promise of blessing. How's that possible? It doesn't make sense, does it? Well, you see, it isn't possible unless we understand one word. And that word is grace. See, God doesn't bless His people because they've paid off their moral and spiritual debt before Him. Because they never could. He blesses His people because He is gracious. Now, a few years ago, I was involved in uh, some events as part of a university Christian union. And there was a guy who came along to uh, a number of those events through the week. And we got chatting after one of them. He, he wasn't a uh, Christian. He wasn't convinced about the Christian faith or even that there was a God in, in kind of general terms. And yet in his mind, behind everything he did, every action he made, was a set of invisible moral scales. That's how he described it. And he couldn't really explain why. But he kind of felt as though his guiding moral principle was to try and tilt those scales in his favour. To convince God, if he really did exist, or the universe, if God didn't exist, that the good stuff he did outweighed the bad stuff he'd done. And you see, that might be exactly how you live your life. As a moral balancing act. Well, you see, if that is you, Haggai too gives you a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because in Haggai 2, even the things that the people think are adding on to the good side of the scale are actually adding weight to the bad side. We cannot undo the trouble that we're in. And those of us who are Christians might need to be reminded of that too. As we, like our friend Josh, who we met a few minutes ago, treat our acts of service to God as a spiritual debt repayment plan, Haggai 2 says, you can't pay them back. We cannot make ourselves clean. Which is why the cross of Jesus Christ is such a big deal. Because even though you are in a spiritual mess, even though you cannot clean yourself up, He can. And he has. That's what the cross was all about. And so all that he would have you do is turn. Turn away from trying to win him over with the stuff you do for him. And turn to him. Acknowledge before him that you are unclean in his sight. And that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to fix that. Ask him for his forgiveness, for his unearned favor. And rejoice. Because he promises that he will give it to you if you trust in him. You see, by ourselves we are a spiritual mess. We are spiritually polluted. But our God is gracious and he is kind. And he blesses us even though we don't deserve it. That's the second problem addressed in Haggai 2, spiritual pollution. But before we close, there is one more issue that remains. The issue that Debbie was struggling with, if you can remember that far back. And we'll think about that briefly under our last heading this morning. The obstacle of opponents. Just read what commands, uh, God commands Haggai to say in verses 21 and 22. It speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. God's saying that one day he's going to topple the mightiest of kingdoms in this world. And for for God's people in Haggai's day, well, that was really good news. Because compared to the other kingdoms that surrounded them, Well, God's people were a small and and insignificant-looking bunch. And even as they tried to build the temple, well, they were under pressure from those other kingdoms, uh, under political pressure and military pressure and any kind of pressure that would stop them from building, in fact. We read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I do just wonder whether as Christians today we might feel a similar kind of pressure too. The situ- situation I mentioned that Debbie was facing, being made to feel like an outsider in her own workplace because she was a Christian. That's a real example from someone I know. And the result of, of being ostracized like that is that that Christian's resolve to keep telling people about Jesus, well, it's shot to pieces. And that's why we, as God's people in Haggai too, need to hear this promise. Because you see, the promise in Haggai 2 points beyond itself to a future where all of the enemies of God's people, not just those ancient kingdoms, but those who oppose his work today, will one day be completely defeated in that opposition. Now I hope that comes as an encouragement to you if you're perhaps a bit of a beleaguered Christian just now. But I wonder whether you really believe it. All sounds great in principle, but it's never going to happen, is it? Well, God says it is. And in fact, God guarantees that it is. Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God says that the governor of his people, a man called Zerubbabel, is going to be like a signet ring. Now a signet ring acted like a kind of royal signature or like a seal. It was a guarantee that a king or a queen would keep their promise. So God's making a promise to his people and he's guaranteeing it. He's putting a signature on it. And as we read through the Bible, we find out just what that signature looks like. See, in both Matthew's and Luke's accounts of the life of Jesus, we're told Jesus' genealogy, his family tree. And I wonder if you can guess who appears in that genealogy. Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel. See, God's promise in Haggai is fulfilled in jesus jesus is the guarantee that god will do what he's promised to do for his people that he will one day return in glory and completely defeat their enemies and so if you find yourself this morning in a situation like debbie's under the cosh For telling people about the Christian faith. Or perhaps even so anxious about the possibility of being held under the cosh. That you won't speak about him at all. Well look to Jesus. Because Jesus is God's guarantee that it's not always going to be like that. One day he will return and put all things right. And the enemies of God and of his people will see God as he really is. So keep going, keep building for his glory. Now each of those three sermons in Haggai 2 address particular difficulties that God's people faced as they were building the temple. But when you hold them all together, they also paint a picture of a glorious future for God's people. We got just a glimpse of it in verses 1 to 9, didn't we? The promise of a future where God lives gloriously among his people. Verses 20 to 23, a a future where the enemies of God's people will ultimately be defeated. And all of that makes verses 10 to 19 all the more important to grasp. Because verses 10 to 19 tell us how it is we become beneficiaries of those wonderful promises. Not because of what we do, because of what he has done. See, as Christians, we can look forward to a glorious future, and it is all of his grace. And so as we wait for that day, the day when he returns and establishes his kingdom in its fullness here on earth, or the day he calls us home, well, we build. We build his temple for his glory, knowing that one day we will see and we will enjoy that glory forever. Let me ask him for his help as we look to do that now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and acknowledge that each one of us have rejected you, have rebelled against your good and your right rule over our lives, and that as a result even our attempts to please you are insufficient to pay off our debt owed to you. And yet, we praise you that you have not treated us as we deserve, but that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life died a criminal's death on the cross to rescue us to welcome us into your kingdom and so we ask this morning that you would please impress upon each of us just how wonderful your grace really is and for those of us who have tasted and experienced your grace towards us Even though our efforts to serve you might appear and might feel weak. Even though we might be opposed as we seek to serve you. Help us to press on with the work you've given us to do. Knowing that you're with us as we do it. And knowing that one day your kingdom will come in its fullness. And we will be with you and enjoy you forever. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in his name. Amen.